Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Well, over 2,500 years ago, ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus famously said that the only constant in life is change. And the funny thing about his observation is that we humans fully know he was speaking truth, even though personally, we tend to find all kinds of ways to resist making the changes we know are needed in our lives. And if you're a manager or a coach or a teacher who aims to help other people make a behavioral change, there are a few things more frustrating than watching them fall back into old behaviors simply because they couldn't overcome the impulses that commonly sabotage people's success. So today, we're going to explore new and innovative ways of approaching change, methodologies that are simple to implement but are proven to yield far more successful outcomes. Our guest today is award-winning Wharton professor Katie Milkman. An engineer by training, she approaches all challenges as problems to be solved, and with that mindset, has drilled into the roadblocks that prevent us from achieving our goals and breaking unwanted behaviors. The key to lasting change, she argues, is to not set ever more audacious goals or to foster good habits, but to get your strategy right. Katie is also the author of the new bestseller called How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Are Meant to Be, which Amazon just named one of the best books of 2021 so far. There are many common reasons people struggle with making desired changes, including procrastination, impulsivity, forgetfulness, laziness. And we're about to ask Katie to share her scientifically proven methods for identifying and overcoming all of these barriers, many of which will surprise you. The overriding goal of this episode is to give you new ways of thinking about and approaching change and to stack the deck in your favor whenever you seek to implement any kind of change in your life. And these are the very same tools that you can use to help others around you succeed in making their desired changes as well. And with that as a brief introduction, I'm excited to welcome you to the podcast, Katie Milkman. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And we're excited that you're here. And I want to get right to it. Your book reminds us that our attempts at changing any aspect of our lives can be hard. I think everyone would nod to that. And we must treat change as a chronic challenge rather than a temporary one, which is a disappointment. So at the end of your book, you pin this down by saying, and I'll quote you, you say, study after study has shown that achieving transformative behavior change is more like treating a chronic disease than curing a rash. You can't slap on a little ointment and expect it to clear up forever. The internal obstacles that stand in the way of change, temptation, forgetfulness, underconfidence, and laziness are symptoms of a chronic disease. They won't go away once you've started treating them. They're human nature and require constant diligence. So that's a little bit disconcerting because I think sometimes we think, you know, I'm just going to make this change and it's going to happen but it doesn't necessarily happen that way. And this constant vigilance is basically saying, if you want to make a change, you're going to have to commit to it lifetime. So I want to understand just from the very beginning, how you concluded this, how you arrived at this, and what have you learned? Yeah. And first of all, I hear you when you say you found this disheartening. I just want to push back on that for a moment and say, I actually don't think it should be disheartening. I think A lot of the tools that we have aren't so hard to keep using and that the mistake and what I find disheartening is when we see journalists or sort of gurus who haven't done 
careful, rigorous scientific research saying, here's my quick fix and offering it up. And then we see that doesn't work. And so what I, I actually am very encouraged by the fact that if we stop looking at change as a quick fix, I think we're going to see much better results by and large. Okay, so I just wanted to set aside the pessimism for a second and then tell you, I'll answer your question, which is, how did I reach this conclusion? There's a, a lot of research behind this, but I'll point to one study in particular that helped me come to this conclusion. And that was a study that I did with a large team of other scientists and co-led with Angela Duckworth, where we partnered with 24-hour fitness gyms. And we were trying to understand whether we could build a program, a digital program that would last for a month and help people create truly enduring change in their lives. And we were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about the idea that we could develop something that would create lasting change. And we partnered with dozens of scientists around the world to develop different tools. We tested 53 different programs, all with different insights baked into them about how we might be able to create lasting exercise habits. And we tested everything from incentivizing exercise in, in different ways to trying to change people's mindsets, to conveying social norms, meaning what is everyone else doing? And by and large, what we found is that we had a lot of success creating change during the period when we were intervening in people's lives and habits, but the durability was a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. While we could change behavior while we were essentially holding people's hands, creating behavior change that lasted was far harder. And when we sort of looked up and looked around at the literature and looked at programs that are focused on helping people change their diets or their energy use behaviors or really any behavior change programming, we saw really consistent patterns that behavioral science was generating a lot of benefits, a lot of lift during the period when people were using the tools. But after those timeframes ended, there was a lot of relapse. And what I came to realize through a conversation with a fabulous doctor who does a lot of research on behavior change named Kevin Volpe, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania with me, is that when doctors are treating patients, they recognize that some challenges are chronic and they treat those as chronic and have a lot of success. And what he said to me is, you know, I don't understand why behavioral scientists have been thinking about enduring behavior change as a temporary fix kind of problem and not chronic the way we treat so many diseases, right? A diabetic comes in, they are struggling, their body isn't producing what's needed. We don't put them on insulin for a month and expect them to be cured. We think about it as a program of treatment they'll need for the rest of their lives. And I think we should be treating enduring change the same way. And what I realized is that just, that fits the data beautifully. That's really what we see is that these features of human nature that make change hard, that we crave instant gratification, we take the path of least resistance, that we're forgetful. They aren't sort of one and done kinds of challenges. We need to find tools that people can leverage throughout their lives that can make it more fun, for instance, to achieve their goals so that their impulses are aligned with what's good for them in the long run, that we can find ways to combat forgetting permanently. And once we do those kinds of things, that's when we're likely to see transformative lasting change. So anyway, I think it's actually, it shouldn't be something that makes you feel <laughs> dismayed. I think it's useful and helpful and positive that once we have this insight about ourselves, we really can create enduring change instead of hitting a wall, which is what so often happens when we look for the quick fix. 
Okay, so truth be told, this was a setup question. And I, I mean, I'm just sitting here listening to you and going, wow, like she handled this so brilliantly. First, by using the word disheartening. This is the Lead from the Heart podcast. So disheartening is, is an experience that I think people can understand and relate to. But the truth is, is that what resonated about your book and why I was so interested in having you on is because you made it emphatically clear that if you want change, this example that you gave about you don't treat a patient for a month with insulin and then take them off and think the diabetes is gone, I mean, that's sort of a crazy expectation. And yet, if we want to go to the gym, we think that we can just change our behavior instantaneously. So the idea that it cannot be a quick fix and that once you commit to making change, it has to be a long-term commitment to do the behaviors that are going to get you where you want to, I think is like sanity. And so you actually pointed out at the beginning the idea that there are many books that say, oh, you can, you know, you can lose 30 pounds in one week or, you know, something exaggerated that's basically unachievable and gets people's hopes up. And so you're really speaking reality here, which makes me very happy. So you handle that really, really well and a perfect example. You list out four human frailties that often interfere with our ability to lose weight, get to the gym we're talking about, read more often, etc. And these are temptation, forgetfulness, underconfidence, and laziness. So is any one of these like the most chronic reason that people don't implement change? Or is it 25, 25, 25? Is there any weighting to this? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, do we know like what proportion of people find each of these to be their key barrier? You know, I don't think we do. And that you're giving me an itch to go and collect some more data. <laughs> if I had to pick the one that I think is most common without actual evidence to back it up besides sort of okay. casual yeah, observation, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I would probably pick temptation or impulsivity. The fact that we tend to be present biased to use economics terminology, which means basically when we evaluate a decision and we're trying to make a choice in the heat of the moment, we tend to dramatically over how much gratification we'll get from our choice immediately and underweight the value we'll get in the long run. And this is why, you know, when you are choosing a lunch, you know, a meal at a restaurant, even though you're committed to being healthy, the pizza calls to you Mm -hmm. more than the salad and you might make a choice that you later regret. It's why we exercise too little, probably for many of us, it's a key part of that and undersave for retirement and so on is that instant gratification looms so large. So if I had to pick one, I'd probably go with with that barrier. But I think they all play a large role. And often it's not just one. It's often I think part of why change is hard is that there's a a number of forces (laughs) that are working against us. And often we need a suite of tactics rather than a single tactic to help us get where we want to be. So what are some of the antidotes then? How do I stay true to a commitment to get to the gym regularly? Or in that moment, you know, I'm not going to have the pizza. I'm going to have the salad. How have you learned to maneuver through those present moment dilemmas. Yeah, I think I actually devote two chapters in my book to this topic because it's so important, I think. And there's sort of two different approaches you can take. I'd call them the carrot and the stick. And the carrot is find a way to make whatever it is that feels like a chore in the heat of the moment into a pleasure. And I call this sort of the Mary Poppins approach, right? Because we've all heard the song, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. And we understand that 
technique for kids, right? If a kid finds something not instantly gratifying, they're not going to do it. So we turn things into games that need to be executed when it comes to kids. But we don't, unfortunately, have the same intuition about ourselves, And there's really fascinating research by Ayelet Fishbach of the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell University that I think puts this in stark relief where what they show is that asking people, what's the most common approach you're going to take if you have a big new goal? What they find is most people say, I'm going to look for the most effective route, sort of the most direct route. So if I want to go to the gym more regularly, I'm going to find the most effective workout machine to achieve my long-term goal, which is getting in shape. And a small fraction of people say that they'll look for the most fun way to pursue their long-term goal. So if it's getting in shape, they'd look to a fun activity of the gym, like Zumba classes with a friend. What they found, though, in their research is if they give people, they randomly assign people different guidance on how to pursue goals. So some people are told, do it in the most effective way possible. Other people are told, do it in the most fun way possible. They actually see better outcomes for the people encouraged to pursue their goals in a way that's fun because people persist when they're enjoying what they're doing and they have this misconception that they'll be able to you know, push through, follow the Nike adage, just do it. And that's actually much harder than we appreciate. So we we have this misconception. And when we look for ways to make it more fun to do what's good for us in the long run, that is how we end up achieving better outcomes. So one specific tactic besides just sort of looking for a more fun way to pursue your goals that I have studied in this context, I would say is what I call temptation bundling. So this is a tactic I started using myself and then eventually studied. And I started using it myself when I was a graduate student. And I was finding it really hard at the end of a long day of classes to motivate myself to go to the gym. And I was simultaneously tempted to put off my work and indulge in entertainment, binge watch Netflix, curl up on the couch with a juicy novel, you name it. And I realized that I could solve both of my problems at once by only allowing myself to indulge in the entertainment I craved while I was exercising. So I created this rule. I call it temptation bundling. I would suddenly now find myself craving trips to the gym at the end of a long day because all I wanted to do was find out what happened next in my latest. I did it with audiobooks. Some people do it with TV shows, but I wanted to find out what happened next in my latest audio novel, right? I would listen to Harry Potter, James Patterson novels, find out what happened to Alex Cross's character. I was hooked at the the gym, time would fly. And when I came home, I had gotten that sort of temptation out of the way. I was ready to focus on my work. I felt invigorated and and refreshed. And I didn't have other temptations luring me away from what was important in that moment. So I've now studied this and proven that it can help other people too. And you can do it in lots of realms, not just with exercise. You know, any chore can be bundled with a pleasure. So, well, not any chore, but a lot of chores can be bundled with pleasures. If you only let yourself listen to your favorite podcast, maybe this one while you're doing, you know, household chores or you're cooking fresh meals, or maybe you reserve drinking your favorite wine for a time when you're cooking, pick up your favorite snack while heading to hit the books at the library or reserve pedicures for a time when you're catching up on work emails or whatever your temptations are, can you find ways to link them with things that you know you should be doing? And that can be the carrot version. Make it fun and temptation bundling can be one way to do that. I do want to ask you, is it sufficient? Is it powerful enough? Like, does it tip you to simply have the mindset shift that the change that I'm trying to implement is fun or pleasurable? So is that powerful enough? 
In other words, you're going to the gym and right, you're you doing- Right, you just reframe it for yourself. I am, I'm saying that. Yes, is that the most essential piece? Okay. So, I doubt that's enough. So link it to what you have to do. So if I want to go to the gym or I don't want to have that pizza and I'm saying I'm going to go to the restaurant and what I'm going to have for dinner is going to be pleasurable even if I don't have the pizza. And you're saying- that's probably not enough? I think it's probably not enough. I think what instead the research points to is these two very concrete strategies, not just changing your mindset, but literally changing your choices and the way that you pursue your goals. So one of those ways is if you're going to go to the restaurant and you've said, okay, I'm not going to have the pizza. Well, but can you find something else that you really enjoy and that you really find tasty and go to a restaurant that makes healthy food taste good, as opposed to just the completely sinless version of healthy eating, if that makes sense, right? Like kale and quinoa, if they don't taste good, it's not going to work. Think about smoothies that like find a way that that you're going to actually enjoy what you're eating or else you're not going to stick to that meal. And by the way, I am not an expert by any means on studies of food and diet, but I casually have observed, right? And I'm sure you have too, the popularity of so many diets that involve sort of you can indulge as much as you want within these constraints. And I think that very much fits this sort of make it fun, like an Atkins diet, which I realize isn't as fatty right now as it was. And by fatty, I mean with a D and not a T. (laughs) So it does allow you to eat things that are fun and tasty, right? It's just, you you can have all the bacon and eggs you want. It's just that you're cutting out some other things. And it may be that those kinds of plans worked for a lot of people and were appealing to a lot of people in part because they could fit this make it fun approach. You're selecting a subset of things, you're making it fun to do what's good for you in the long run. And the constraints are there to help you achieve your goal, but you're not just completely abstaining from all the things that bring you pleasure. So I do think that's important to keep in mind. It's not just, okay, I'm going to reframe this as fun. It's I'm literally going to pursue my goal in a different way. So it is actually enjoyable in the moment. Stick. Okay, stick. So stick stick (laughs) is the other approach. And this one is so counterintuitive for many people. And what's intuitive is that we're used to others, like a government, right, a policymaker, a manager, a parent, constraining our choices or fining or penalizing us when we make bad decisions, right? So we're really used to the idea that say if I speed, there's a speed limit and I might be tempted to speed to get somewhere faster, but that's bad for me. It's bad for others. And so, you know, there's a fine imposed on me if I give into that temptation, right? I get a ticket. So that makes a lot of sense. What we don't think about often, but is really powerful is actually creating those kinds of rules and constraints for ourselves. And that's the stick. When we ourselves set up sort of penalty clauses or constraints on our future behavior with a recognition of the temptations we might be subjected to that we don't want to give in to them. And that turns out to be really useful. There's a lot of fascinating research on different ways to do this, showing how powerful it is. And I'll just point to one really simple way we can do this, which is with what's called a cash commitment device. And it looks a lot like a speeding ticket. Like you set up a fine for yourself. You'll have to pay if you don't achieve a goal that you want to achieve. So there's websites where you can do this like stick.com and Beeminder. You can put money on the line uh, that you will have to forfeit if you don't achieve some goal, like say 
I'm going to stick with going to the gym a certain number of days in the coming week or getting on an app where you're going to learn a new language or being on time for all the meetings that you have. Whatever change you're trying to make, you can define what the parameters are, what the goal is. You declare a rougher read to the site and you put money on the line that you'll forfeit if you fail to achieve that goal. And you can even choose to send it to a charity you hate rather than a charity you like to make it really painful so there's no silver lining. They have charities you can donate to on either side of contentious issues, right? Like a gun control charity or the NRA, and you can mm-hmm. pick what will hurt <laughs> most. And then that money goes away if you don't achieve your goal. And it turns out this kind of commitment contract can be really effective, right? It increases the price of your vice. So even if you discount the future or future value, now if you increase that future value enough, the sting is going to be bigger. Or you can bring some of those penalties forward by saying, you know, literally next week I'm going to incur a fine as opposed to in the distant, distant future when I don't look the way I want to look or when I don't feel the way I want to feel or whatever it is you're trying to achieve when I don't get the performance reviews I want to get. So commitment devices, commitment contracts are one of those ways. I'll just point to one study I love showing how powerful they are. This was a study of smokers who wanted to quit and some were randomly assigned to sort of a traditional, here's all the tools we can offer you to quit smoking type of quit smoking cessation program. And another group was randomly assigned to a commitment program. So they got all the regular tools and they could put money into an account that they would have to forfeit all the money in six months later if they failed to pass a nicotine or cotinine urine test. And what happened is the people who had just access to an account where they could put that money that would disappear so they could find themselves, they quit at a 30% higher rate than a control Mm -hmm. group. And that's just one of many studies showing the benefits of constraints. There's research showing if you, for instance, put your money in a bank account that you can't access and it has the same interest rate as another bank account, just having access to such an account increases savings 80% year over year. So different ways that we can constrain ourselves can be really powerful. And that is the stick. So apply this. Since this is a leadership podcast, there's two audiences here all in one. There's how do I change the kinds of things that I want to change personally? And then there is the how do I help somebody who works for me make a behavioral change that's in their best interest that both of us want them to make, right? right? And so this may sound like a really naive question. And so if it is, I apologize. Do you lean one way or the other, carrot or stick? Oh, it's not a naive question at all. I think if you're managing others... Honestly, I think carrots are a great way to start. And the research suggests that when we use sticks, when leading others, it actually conveys sort of stigma and disapproval for failures that can have negative relationship consequences. So when managing someone else, I think the first best tool is using carrots when possible. But sticks are sometimes a tool that we need to use. And by the way, I just want to say right now, at the moment when we're recording this, I don't know exactly when it will air, but we're at a moment where a lot of employers and managers are thinking a lot about vaccines as a challenge and like, how are we going to encourage vaccination and make sure that everyone stays healthy? And this is a situation where we've tried a lot of carrots and they haven't been working as well as I think everyone would like, given that we're in the middle of a major outbreak and a lot of people chose not to get vaccinated. And I think there are moments like this when a stick is called for. I'm I'm very enthusiastically supportive of taking stronger measures. My employer, for instance, has mandated that everyone be vaccinated, you know, allowing for religious exemptions. And I think there are moments when that is the right approach. But in general, if we can get where we want to with carrots, I think it bodes better for relationships in managing others. 
So it's a transition the way you're describing it, which I appreciate. So the premise is begin with the carrots. And to your example about COVID, if you're not seeing the behavioral change that you need and are at some point insisting upon, then you change course. I think that's right. I think when we're managing others, that is my advice based on the sort of the stick can be a little bit more powerful, but it comes with a stigma. It comes with some backlash potentially when managing others. And so carrots first, sticks when absolutely necessary would be my philosophy. And I think that aligns with the data. And then when managing ourselves, we actually have more leeway because we're not going to like create stigma for ourselves or, or backlash in ourselves when we're managing ourselves. We might be ticked off at our past self, I suppose, but we'll we'll be able to deal with that. So there, I think it's probably more a matter of taste and how strongly you want to achieve this objective. And probably why not use both tactics if this is really important to you, right? You can set up a commitment device and find a fun way to achieve your goal. There's no need to use one or the other. It can be both. But also it can be a situation where it's obvious that one's going to be more feasible than the other, right? There are some situations, for instance, where you might not be able to find a super fun way to, say, study for an important test on time or hit a deadline. There's just nothing fun about the situation. And then you're going to lean towards commitment device because that's the only option in your playbook. So I think it's context dependent as well. What's what's feasible? So I have a question for you that's a little bit disconnected from what we've been talking about. But you mentioned the whole COVID pandemic and organizations making decisions to vaccinate. But I have a question for you in terms of the work from home challenge too, because this is another one of those Mm. issues where you've got a certain percentage of the population that's saying, you know, we proved that it worked and we don't want to commute and we want to work from home. And some companies are going full Monty and just saying, yeah, we saw it too. So you don't have to come back or if you come back, you can come back whenever you want to. And then you have other companies saying, no way, no how. And so is there a reluctance to change that's holding some of these organizations? Did I, did I ask that correctly? Yes. Okay. Yes. Is there a reluctance to changes? Like, oh my goodness, yes. It's a really interesting question and point that you're making. So absolutely, there's a huge reluctance to change in general. Behavioral scientists call this status quo bias. And it's related to another bias, which is escalation of commitment that we tend to sort of want to continue down a path. Once we've started on it, we overweight sunk costs. We find that losses loom larger than gains when people are making calculations. And any deviation from the current policy or what you're used to feels like a loss. There's all of these things that make us much too reluctant to change, I would say, is the sort of general finding from the literature, which, by the way, gives another prescription, which is like, if you have even the slightest itch to make a change, you probably should leap because because that probably means there's overwhelming support for making the change. That's my general, you know, mm-hmm. obviously more analysis should be applied whenever <laughs> possible than that, but that's sort of a, a high-level impression that I think the data supports. So in terms of work from home, obviously in different industries and in different organizations, the costs and benefits will vary tremendously. I think one of the most interesting things we're seeing, though, is that even within an industry where there's multiple companies doing very similar work, you're seeing these differences in the way they're landing. You know, one consulting firm saying, we're going to go completely remote. The other saying, we're completely coming back. Right. You know, and, and you can see they're really similar jobs, really similar organizations. And like, you know, how did they end up in these very different places? I think the implications are going to be fascinating for the labor market. And this is not... 
my focus That's or okay. my I'm area of expertise. You're going to see sorting of the kinds of employees by the kinds of firms. We may see more differentiation, not only in the way that people work, but in the kinds of services that are provided by companies that currently look like absolute substitutes, because the, this is going to have big culture implications and implications for the way work gets done. What I'm most worried about, honestly is the organizations that aren't going all in one direction. They're giving people choice, they're being flexible, and some people are going to choose to come back to the office and others won't. What I'm most worried about is, and others have written about this too, that the people who don't come back may be underestimating the extent to which FaceTime will matter and to which they're going to suffer consequences in terms of their promotion and advancement Mm -hmm. that they aren't anticipating, right? So imagine, and here's my sort of worst case scenario, an organization that says, hey, it's up to you. And because, say, women tend to still in our society end up taking on more childcare and say minorities might be more likely also to have pressures to be at home. Maybe they're more likely to have different demands based on family structure. So maybe you see women and minorities working from home more and you see sort of white men are the dominant group in the office. And then we know that when people get FaceTime, they end up getting promoted more and getting more raises and so on. Nobody anticipates this, but all of a sudden we see a growing gap in the salaries and promotion rates for white men versus other employees. So that's the kind of worst case scenario I'm most worried about in organizations that give flexibility to employees. And like, how do we prevent that kind of thing from happening? We already have gaps on these dimensions that I think are not great for society. They're not great for individuals. And like, are they going to be exacerbated? I see this as a very definite change issue, even though this wasn't where I wanted to go with the conversation. I'm fascinated with your perspective on it because basically 18 months ago, nobody was working from home. And now we had 40, 50% of the population working from home. And for the large part, it proved that people are just as productive and it works and technology supports it. And there are limitations, certainly. But for the most part, Giving people the freedom to work from home, even on a hybrid schedule, is not a huge risk for most organizations. Certainly, there are some that just simply can't implement it. But for those that could, those that have chosen to, the disconnect for me is to say, we're going to allow you to work from home. And then whether it's a change issue or it's passive aggressive or it's unintentional, we're going to end up punishing the people that end up taking advantage of that opportunity. The people that show up for work four or five days a week are going to end up being sight in front of me and likely to get the plum assignments, likely to get promotions, likely to get bigger bonuses. So what's holding us back from saying, hey, if we're going to give this to people, then we need to change how we reward people and make sure that people that are working from home aren't treated like pariahs or second-class citizens. That's exactly right. That's exactly what we need to do, but I'm just worried we're not going to get out in front of it and do it. I'm reminded of a study. I'm embarrassed that I cannot tell you the names of the authors. I really like to be able to cite exactly whose work I'm describing, but there was a study that fascinated me that looked at smokers who were congregating in smoking areas and basically showed that if you were a smoker and your boss was a smoker, you saw benefits in terms of your promotion relative to non-smokers on your team because you're getting like more face time and so on and more bonding time. And the effects were pretty striking. And so if you just sort of try to scale that finding and say, okay, if that's what's happening with smoking, like now imagine, right, a workforce where some people are getting that face time every day and it's much more than just the smoking breaks and they're having lunches and the handshakes and the joking at the cooler and other people are just signing in for Zoom calls, 
we really need to think about what are we going to do to prevent this sort of second class citizen type situation from arising. And I don't think enough thought is going into it. And as we're focused on, oh, look, it worked to let people work from home during the pandemic. What I think we're not appreciating is everyone was working from home. And this will be a very different world where some people are and some people aren't. Very good. I want to get back to some of the stuff in your book. And one of the things that I have found personally, you know, I nodded my head a lot through your book, but specifically this idea that if you artificially create a fresh start date, this idea that the start of a new life chapter, no matter how small, might be able to give people the impression of a clean slate. So whether it's the start of a new year, which many people take advantage of, or a new month or just a Monday, this idea that a new beginning offers a sort of a psychological do-over is really powerful. I'm going to start this today or Monday coming next week is when this is going to begin. So tell us why this is such a powerful idea and how leaders can apply it to managing people and goal achievement. Yeah, thanks for giving me a chance to talk about fresh starts because this is one of my favorite topics I've ever studied and that I cover in the book. The work really was generated by a visit to Google to talk with a bunch of leaders there about how they could get more employees engaged with programming they were offering to help those employees develop new skills or take advantage of wellness programs and so on, save more for retirement. And I got this question, which was, okay, we're convinced that behavioral science has lots of tools we can offer our employees that will help them make change. But is there some ideal moment to encourage change when people will be particularly open to it, particularly interested in taking the leap? And it sent me on this sort of adventure with two collaborators, Heng Chen Dai, who was my student at the time and is now a professor at UCLA's Anderson School, and Jason Reese, the CEO of Behavioralize and a Wharton Senior Fellow. We started talking about moments when people are more open to change and sort of what we'd observed and started collecting data. And we found that, as you described, there are these moments, in fact, when we feel like life has given us a chapter break, when we're turning the page on a new era. And those moments include, as you said, the start of a new year, the start of a new week, the start of a new month, the celebration of holidays that we associate with fresh starts. So think more Labor Day and less Valentine's Day. Birthdays also give us the sense that we're turning the page and we're opening a new chapter. And the way that we think about time, what happens is we say, okay, I feel like it's a new chapter in my life. I'm sort of, I'm at a new beginning. You know, last year or last week or the last year of my life, that was the old me. And whatever I failed to achieve then, I can sort of set that aside and say, that's the past. This is the future and the future is a clean slate and and we're more optimistic about our capabilities because we can say, yeah, the old me, last year's me failed to quit smoking, but the new me can do it. What we found in our work is people are more likely to visit the gym after these fresh start dates. They're more likely to set goals about everything from their finances to their education to their health at fresh start moments. They're also more likely to search for the term diet on Google. And when we offer people an opportunity to capitalize on change or to make a change. Like, do you want to start saving for retirement and and start putting a portion of every paycheck into a 401k? Or do you want to start getting reminders about a goal that you told us you haven't achieved yet, but you want to achieve? If we simply relabel an identical date on the calendar and just sort of call to people's attention that it is associated with a fresh start, like we add the label on first day of spring to March 20th instead of, say, third Thursday in March, or we call out three months in the future is when they'll be celebrating a birthday rather than just saying three months in the future. If we do that, people are more attracted to opportunities to change at those moments that have been labeled as fresh starts. So taken together, all of this suggests we can do more to call out fresh starts on the calendar in people's lives 
and highlight opportunities to make change at those moments. And so that's a thing a manager can do, sort of look for a moment that's going to feel like a fresh start to an employee, sort of label it as such like, oh, you know, you're getting this promotion or you're going to be moving to this new office or it's going to be a new year or it's a new quarter. Let's set new goals at that moment. And of course, I think it's no accident that we glom onto this naturally often, that a lot of things are structured around fresh start dates in terms of setting new goals and making new plans. But we can do it even more proactively. And if there's someone who we see could particularly use a change, we'd really like to see them enroll in a a new training program or sort of up their game. What can we look to as a fresh start date when we suggest this is the time to begin? That's sort of the key, I think, takeaway for managers from this work. I learned this in high school. I have many talents and many limitations. And one of my great limitations is that I'm just spatially challenged, let's just say. And it appears in many aspects of life, but I'm not the person who can draw or paint or even, you know, replicate a box, you know, show me what this would look like in a mirror is a hopeless cause for me. And so when I was taking geometry in high school, it was, again, it was just a hopeless cause because I couldn't see what other people were really seeing. And so my high school teacher said to me one day, he goes, you know, you're failing. And I said, yeah, I know I'm failing. This is really challenging for me. And he goes, how about we have a fresh start? He goes, because you're a smart guy. He goes, how about if we just forget that you haven't done well up until now? And let's just see what we can do like in the next week. Let's see if you can sort of figure out this simple thing. And so he gave me an assignment. And of course, you know, it was optimistic. And I never really did well in geometry because of the limitations I have. But I did well enough to get through the class. And I realized how powerful that was. Like, I don't have to be mired in that. I've failed all the way up until this point. So when I was a great teacher, he was. But when I was managing people 20 years later, I had the situation where I had somebody who was failing. Like we were managing people on monthly goals, but really on quarterly performance. And their quarterly performance was really, really poor in relationship to what everybody else was doing. And I said, hey, let's just forget that. Let's just have a fresh start. And the same thing happened. You saw people just light up. It's like, I don't have to endure the failure of the entire quarter before I can turn things around. And I just think this was really powerful. Let's talk about New Year's resolutions. And I know you're like, you want to applaud the 20% of people that succeed. So you can speak about that. But why do 80% of people fail with their New Year's resolutions? Yeah, since you gave me the leeway to start with that, I will say New Year's resolutions, classic fresh start. I think it's great that many more people go up to bat and give it a try to achieve change or achieve a goal because they maybe have this added impetus due to the new year. And so I think it's great that we're trying Trying more around fresh starts because if you don't try, you're not going to get anywhere with change. On the other hand, the dismal statistics are that most of us fail when we try to change. This is true, by the way, not just of New Year's resolutions, but of any attempt at change. And we sort of started on that note, right? Change is hard. That's the reality. There aren't quick fixes. It's tough. There's often setbacks. It's just part of any change journey. And the reason the change is hard is that so many different features of human nature are working against us. And now I'm not even talking about external barriers, right? Of course, like, you know, we can get into income inequality and all the things that are structured 
structurally problematic, but just internally, we are designed to resist change. We've talked about status quo bias. We look for the path of least resistance. We're impulsive. We're forgetful. All of these features of human nature make change really challenging. And so fresh starts are, I think, fantastic because they get us going. And one of the barriers to change is status quo bias and never wanting to even start in the first place. But then we need a lot more than simply a little motivation at the beginning to persist. And that's why I wrote a whole book. Actually, I've done this work on Fresh Starts. I'm really proud of it. I think it's really exciting work. And a number of people said, you know, you're going to write a book about Fresh Starts, right? And I was like, no, because that doesn't get us anywhere. (laughs) It just gets us off the launch pad, but then we fall down. It's the reason I wrote a book that has a chapter on Fresh Starts, but then chapters on so many other topics that once we understand all of these other tactics that can help us achieve more, if we can combine those with that Fresh Start motivation, I think then we can see really enduring change. Another feature of human nature, to use your language, is that most of us tend to be overconfident about how easy it's going to be to be self-disciplined. So it's not just like, oh, on Monday, I'm going to start losing weight. And we think it's all going to be, you know, simple, easy peasy. And it's why you say in your book that we buy expensive gym memberships and don't go and register for online classes we're never going to take. And we think, to use your language again, the future me is going to be able to make good choices, but too often the present me succumbs to temptation. So tell us why. Well, this is really all back to present bias, right? So that we have this optimism. For some reason, we know or we should know that this comes up and bites us regularly, but we're so optimistic. You know, and it's related to fresh starts, I think, right? We have developed maybe you'd call it a psychological immune system, to use Dan Gilbert's words, who's a psychologist at Harvard who studies some of our misconceptions about what will make us happy and about forecasting the future. So that psychological immune system is probably the reason that we tend to be overconfident and overoptimistic. It feels better to believe in ourselves than to think we're going to fall on our faces. And it, it allows us to stand up again after failure. So there's good things about it, but there's bad things about it too, because this overconfidence can lead us to think we don't need tools and tactics. Maybe we think I can do it without a commitment device or without or making a plan. Have a quick push fix, through. Like you said, exactly, right. exactly. All that optimism, it has functions that are obvious, but it also can lead us not to be as realistic as we should be about what's going to be challenging and our need to come up with strategies that are going to help us overcome temptation. You tell the story of MIT professor Dan Arelli, who in teaching some of the smartest students of the world was shocked to see how many of them procrastinated on class assignments. And so as an experiment, he gave one of his classes two options. Students can turn in all three required papers on the last day of the semester, or if they chose, they could select earlier deadlines of their own choosing for each paper and lose points if they missed any of their self-set deadlines. So basically, they're setting themselves up to be punished for not performing to a higher standard that they set. So tell us about this, because I think this is one of the great insights from your book in terms of setting artificial deadlines for yourself in order to achieve goals or even to implement change. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is, I should also say, this is work Dan did with Klaus Wartenbrock of INSEAD. And what they found in a series of studies is that, first of all, some people recognize the value of commitment devices, of setting deadlines artificially that had real penalties associated with them. And that people who 
took advantage of the opportunity to set deadlines or actually, sorry, I should back up and say they did this in an even more controlled way. They had another experiment where some people had the opportunity to set deadlines with penalties, others didn't. And yet a third group was just given deadlines with penalties that were equally spaced. And what they found is that the group given those deadlines, having them imposed on them sort of very paternalistically, that's the group that actually performed best. But having the opportunity to self-set deadlines with penalties was better in terms of performance, particularly on a final assignment, in fact, where you might procrastinate and put off all of your work. That led to better outcomes than people who had no opportunity to set constraints and just sort of all of their work would pile up until the end of the semester. And about a third of people, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, would try to sort of evenly set deadlines for themselves. Maybe it was a third to a half. But a lot of people just let the work pile up. And again, that didn't have great outcomes. That's part of why paternalism was actually helpful in this context. So I think these results are really interesting. And they suggest probably more of us should be taking advantage of commitment devices. And there's some new great research that was done by a team out of UCSD showing that giving people artificial deadlines for important life outcomes, if I'm remembering correctly, this was a medical setting, giving people an artificial deadline, get, you know, get this test or get this done by this date, significantly improved outcomes. And so I do think when we create those boundaries for ourselves, we can have really good results. Do you use them? Oh, absolutely. And I, I normally use them in a way where there's a little bit of a penalty and that I sort of declare them publicly to someone I'm working with, like, I will get you this by Friday, even though there's no Friday deadline. And then I work like crazy to do it so that it won't just keep getting put off and put off. Oh, I use them all the I, time. I think that's just wonderful. Let's talk about how expectations shape outcomes. You talk about how your PhD advisor used to say to his students that they range from very smart to spectacular. So basically, Lake Wobegon. And this was his way of saying that he had unshakable faith that each student he advised and believed they all had some remarkable talents or many remarkable talents. He's basically saying, you're all remarkable. And so this is something that's hard for many people to do, to be able to assume that a whole room of people could be spectacular. And yet this was his approach. So why is telling people that you have great confidence in them so important for managers? Yeah, and by the way, I just want to note that we were just talking about how people tend to be overconfident and that can be a problem. And I recognize it may feel like a contradiction to now pivot and say, but sometimes they're underconfident. But I do want to point out, you know, it depends. In a lot of parts of our life, we're overconfident and that's harmful. We think, you know, I don't need these tools. But sometimes we don't even try things because we lack confidence. And so this is part of a key message of my book is sort of understanding what the barriers are that you're up against and tailoring your solution to those situations. In terms of a group of people and managing them, unquestionably, it's important to convey that you believe in them and that they have abilities. Study after study has shown that when other people tell us we can do something, when we believe we can do it, we are able to achieve more. This is sort of the bedrock research of the placebo effect, which I think everyone probably listening will be familiar with. Uh, when we believe that a pill is making us healthier, we actually, even though it's a sugar pill, have better medical outcomes. There's literally physiological benefits. And there's research showing similar kinds of effects in other settings and settings where we're just trying to achieve our goals. If we're given the belief that we're capable of this, we will work harder. If we think that intelligence is something that can grow as opposed to something that's fixed, 
having a growth mindset. This is something Carol Dweck of Stanford has done great research on. Tends to lead to better outcomes. We work harder. We learn more from failure. We persist longer. And I think my advisor had that at least implicitly, he had that knowledge and it's part of the reason he was one of the greatest mentors in my field. He had unbelievable success. I think was that, you know, he gave his students a lot of independence. He made it clear that he believed good things were going to happen and he really helped us believe in our own abilities. In a setting where there's a lot of negative feedback in a graduate degree program, there's a lot of failure that you experience. Manuscripts we write, try to send off for publications, 90 plus percent are rejected at the first attempt. And so in a world where you're getting a lot of negative signals, having a manager or an advisor who gives you confidence and builds confidence, I think is just critically important. So do I. Now, let me go back to overconfidence because Daniel Kahneman, you mentioned, he declared that overconfidence is the bias he'd most like to eliminate if he could eradicate just one with the stroke of magic. And so since we're sandwiching overconfidence, no confidence or low confidence with unconfidence, overconfidence again, Do you believe overconfidence is the bias that holds us back the most, or do you think that it's a lack of confidence that holds us back the most? This is a very unsatisfying answer, but I I think it depends. And I actually, I've also learned that arguing with Danny Kahneman is a fool's errand. He's a a brilliant man and brilliant thinker. And I think the fact that he points to overconfidence is the biggest barrier to achievement. (laughs) Yeah, like I don't want to, I don't want to argue with that. He may be right. I think he's thinking less about behavior change generally in his work and more about the kinds of biases that might lead a baseball team to hire the wrong pitcher or (laughs) you choose the wrong oil well to invest in. So he studies a different category of problems slightly than I tend to focus on. But I think he's right that overconfidence is a huge challenge. It's certainly a challenge when it comes to present bias and underappreciating the need for strategic thinking about change. So I'm not going to argue with him. I just want to add that there are contexts where underconfidence is also a bias and that trying to be thoughtful about what situation you're in and try to walk that line so you can achieve your goals, both with the confidence that you have what it takes, but not the excess confidence that will lead you not to rely on good strategy is important. And I'll also just plug work by my my friend and colleague Don Moore at UC Berkeley's Haas School. He has a wonderful book about overconfidence and confidence called Perfectly Perfectly Confident. Confident. He's been on the podcast, actually. Fabulous. Mm. Yeah. I think he thinks great thoughts on this topic and reading his book will give listeners a lot more on how to balance these things. So Katie, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition that we call the Heartbeat Round. So to give us a little bit more personal insight into the biggest influences in your life, I'm going to ask you a few more personal questions, but these require a quick, instinctive, and brief answer. In other words, your goal is to answer each of them in a heartbeat. Are you game? I'm game. All right. Here we go. If tomorrow were New Year's Day, or any day in which you could give yourself a new start, what would your one resolution be? To spend less time doing work after I put my son to bed and more time relaxing. One book that profoundly shaped who you'd go on to become. Nudge by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. The quality you admire most in other people. Persistence on tough goals. One lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. That it's so important to enjoy what you're doing and the people you're doing it with, and that will produce higher quality results across the board. Something you think everyone should do at least once in their life. 
my God, there's just so many things. This is why I'm struggling. And I'm like something related to my area of expertise and intellectual. I want to say, have a conversation with someone about something that's a deeply held belief and talk to someone who disagrees and really listen. I think that's really a very good piece of advice right now. Something we seem to be struggling with as a society. Your synonym for the word heart. Caring. No one's ever used that before, and that's actually a great answer. Tied to research which shows that the people we're around most greatly shape our own behavior. The one person you try to spend the most time with. Angela Duckworth. The most underestimated and undervalued leadership trait of all. Making sure the people around you are enjoying what they're doing. Strategy you personally employ to ensure you never forget to do something you intend to or promise someone you will do. Writing everything down on a calendar. If I say I'll do it, it has to be written down. Otherwise, it won't happen. One major workplace change you're certain will happen globally post-COVID. I'm certain that we will all be more conscientious about showing up for meetings, not feeling well. I think we'll do a lot less spreading germs when we're aware we're sick. Culture value every organization should have. Integrity. And the behavior trait that derails the most leadership careers. Micromanaging. Wow, that's never come up before, but it's toxic. So thank you. Those are really cool. Very good answers. And thank you for going through that with me. And I want to get back to our regular conversation. One final question for you is, it's really an opportunity for you to introduce something from your book that we didn't already discuss or to reemphasize something that we've discussed that you think would be invaluable information for my leadership audience to know. And I'd really love to send people off just mulling over your final piece of wisdom here. So I'll turn it over to you, Katie. My final piece of wisdom is um, one of my favorite takeaways from research I've done in the last decade with Lauren Eskris Winkler. She's a brilliant psychologist at the Kellogg School who noticed that too often when we see someone else is struggling to achieve a goal, we sort of put our arm around them and give them our two cents of wisdom because we think we can generate great insights off the bat. And she realized that can be really demotivating. And she wondered if we should flip the script. And when we see someone struggling occasionally, maybe another strategy we could consider is asking them how they would coach someone facing similar challenges. She has done a number of experiments showing that actually putting someone in the position of mentor or advice giver helps them achieve more themselves because it conveys, I believe in you, I think you've got what it takes. It causes them to dredge up insights they might not have otherwise dredged up about how to achieve their own goals. And it also makes them feel like they'd be hypocritical if they don't walk the talk. And so I think looking for opportunities to put anyone who's struggling in the position to give advice and be a role model is something we rarely think to do, but it can be a really effective tool for coaching others and helping them achieve their potential. I love that. And they will be mulling that over. I know I will be. It stood out as an idea in your book that I've actually seen happen. I've seen people do it. And I don't know that it is even intentionally. It's like, how would you help somebody else achieve this? I've seen people actually do this and it lights people up and it turns them from being the person who's failing or struggling into sort of the expert and it changes their state. It changes their, their mindset. It changes their whole approach to how they're going to fix whatever it is they need to. So that's lovely. Thank you for punctuating that. Thank you so very much for joining us. It's been really, really wonderful. I could talk to you for hours. I wish we had more time, but on behalf of my audience, Katie, thank you so very much. 
Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Before we head up, I want to once again thank each of you for helping to introduce us to all the people in your life. It's such a profound honor to know that this podcast now has an audience in 155 countries around the world. And this growth and exposure simply could not have happened without you recommending us to others. And for that, I am so sincerely grateful. And if by chance you're a new listener to the show, we very much welcome you. And I hope you don't mind my ringing the plug bell. My book, Lead from the Heart, has been taught in nine American universities, and I hope you'll take a look at it. You can easily find it on Amazon or wherever fine books are sold. And besides hosting this podcast, I'm also a professional speaker and consultant who would love to help you and your organization, whether to speak in an event or help you evolve your culture and leadership practices. I would love to hear from you. And you can reach me at my website, markccrowley.com. And as always, I want to thank my wonderful team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Carrie Finnessy, and the guy who turned straw into gold, my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.